Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. Well, this morning we are in the book of Joshua once again. Um, last week we were in Joshua, Joshua um, 24, verse 14 and 15. And this is part B. Um, I didn't get very far into that text, and we're going to uh, clean the rest of that up today. But the question that is being answered today, hopefully, and in partnership with last week's message is, how can I make my family's faith stick? How can I, I as a dad, as, as, a, as a husband, how can I make my family's faith stick? I can't help but think that there's people in here that, that you're trying to do it alone. And that you're here, praise God, and I'm glad that you're here. And that you, you are alone, and you're trying to do it alone. And I would say God's grace is special for people who, who surrender their heart and they give everything to Him. It's amazing when we're obedient how God just flourishes and He blesses abundantly. Yeah, there's those of us who, who've maybe been challenged and we're kind of... We're winding down the weeks of this series and you've been challenged. Maybe you've been sitting on the edge of your seat for every single message and you have this tension and a tension that hasn't been resolved since the first week and now you're sitting thinking, man, I just, I just don't know. I feel like I'm missing something. I just want you to know that God's grace is sufficient for that as well. And stick with it. Surrender to Him. Allow Him to work through you. Kind of the subtitle, if we could go back one slide, the subtitle for the series is Vintage Values, Maintaining Vintage Values, or Keeping Vintage Values Through Cultural Change. We've talked about how culture's changed, and we've, we've, we've referred to that. We're going to see a little bit of that um, again today. And one of the things that, that I think is so important, it's really foundational for this message, is for us to just kind of rest in one text before we even launch off, and it's going to be heavy. I've been praying about this message, but I want you to know the Bible is an equal offender. The truth of God is an equal offender. It really is. I've been challenged. I have been, I've been really been just being worked around by this message. And my prayer is that you will too. My, my prayer, and I have lofty goals for this message, that you'll be changed by this message. Not because of the eloquence of my words, but by the Holy Spirit's precision in your heart to challenge, maybe to remove some things that that are happening in your life that you're allowing to happen and allow God to truly work. But we live in a time where culture has changed and culture always changes. Culture is amoral. Culture just kind of does what culture does and yet it's people's morality that changes culture. And yet even amongst every different culture, whether it's the ancient Mesopotamians or the Babylonians or, or the Jews before Jesus or in the time that Jesus walked the earth or even now some 2,000 years later, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in the human heart. There is this longing for something bigger than what we see. In the human heart, there is, there is this longing for something beyond flesh and blood. And God put that there. It's part of God's design in you. 
That eternity is a longing for your heart and your soul. And, and what we see in the culture today is, is everybody, because we all have this, I believe this from the Word of God, Ecclesiastes 3.11. I believe this, that God has put just the, just the, the desire and the craving for eternity in every human heart. That every people group, we all wrestle with this. And yet what we see in the culture today is everybody's trying to answer the question, how can I get to heaven? But they're answering it in different ways. And each one thinks that they have it right. Now, the $5 phrase for that is religious pluralism. Probably never heard those words used before. Google them later. You find out I didn't make them up. Religious pluralism. And what that means is that, that there's this, this idea that there is just a universal truth that everybody can be good with God as long as you find some facet of religion that you would shape and kind of morph your life into. And if you're a good person, you attend enough, you're regular enough, you serve enough, you give enough, that God will smile upon you and He will say, Well done. Sure, come on in. You're forgiven. You're a good person. You see, religious pluralism is driving that. Probably a little confusing, so I'll tell you a story to make maybe make this make sense. Several years ago, Marla and I, um, one of the many adventures that I have taken Marla on, we went on a uh, whitewater rafting trip. Has anyone went whitewater rafting? Anyone? You survived, so you can raise your hand. It's fine. Right? Has anyone vowed never to go whitewater rafting? Anyone? Anyone? That's fine. Raise them up. There's a few. Never going whitewater rafting. That's cool. Maybe this story will actually like prove your point. I don't know. Um, but Marla and I, we we had this opportunity. We kind of seized the opportunity, a little a little getaway when we lived in Florida to go whitewater rafting. We went down the Chattooga River. Um, the Bull Sluice is the big rapid in the area that we went on. It was a lot of fun. We had kind of, uh, you know, I, I've always lived by the motto, a little is pretty good, but a lot is a lot better. So I decided we weren't just going to go on the four-hour tour. We were going to do the eight-hour tour. So we went out, and this, like, lunch was provided, which is basically like soggy sandwiches. They didn't tell you that in the brochure, but that's what it worked out to be. So we go out, and we just have this amazing day. And, and we were so, I mean, I was very confident. We actually had the, the, our guide that was actually in our raft um, was the person in charge of all the other rafts in our crew. And there were like three or four other rafts. And we went out. We just had an amazing day. He's doing crazy stuff in the raft. And we're kind of freaking out a little bit, but we're okay. But then we, we get up to like this challenging set of rapids. And we make it through. Um, and everything's kind of great. And, you know, the other groups are kind of there. And, and, and so... Our guide kind of backs up a little bit, and he allows the other people to go through this this other really challenging set of rapids. So he kind of backed off a little bit, let it, the other groups go through, because the other guides, one of the guides was kind of a rookie. So he lets the rookie go through with his raft. Well, he didn't do so well, and this, if you never go whitewater rafting, this is the reason why. Um, he, this, this new guide literally grabbed the raft, high-centered it on a rock, which is bad in the rafting world, and then the raft tipped like this, which means that people just got ejected out of the raft. But the water doesn't stop flowing, so it's just flowing. Now people are flowing. you got the raft. It's flowing on its own. You have people spread out everywhere. And the thing that was incredible about that is, A, 
uh, we were just fine and they weren't. But we got to be a part of the solution. Um, now our guide, we, we had gone through and we went through that tough part of the rapids. And now our guide was going off like Indiana Jones and he was taking lines and wrapping lines around trees. And he, was, he had all this, this whole thing set up to help bail these people out. But one thing that was quite interesting is as soon as people went into the water and they become, then they realized that, that the water was not safe and they realized that if they just kept going down the river that they would be hurt. And every single person, as they're thrown out, each of them is grabbing hold of the nearest rock. And as we were, as we were kind of going down the river, and they're kind of, you know, they're, they're like calling out for help, 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 help. I mean, what are we going to do? I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to get out of the water, or out into the water. Like, I'll be going down with them. Help, 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 I'll be going down too. We eventually stopped, and there was this, this, this relief effort to get them out of the water. But you know what? I can still hear them calling for help. Some kind of frantic, some not very frantic, all crying for help. And that's the same thing that we see in our culture today. People are crying for help. But yet, they're so desperate because God has put eternity in the human heart, this longing, this desire for eternity, that people are willing to cling to anything thinking it is going to meet satisfaction for their sins. But do not be deceived, church. There is only one who sets the sinner free, and his name is Jesus Christ. Salvation only comes by, by the power and the work and the grace of God, to the glory of God. And yet, as the, as the world is clinging to this, this, each one saying, include me, tolerate me, and do all of these things, the Word of God says, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He is the foundation of our faith. There is no other way to get to heaven. So as our culture is, is throwing people about, and they're willing to hold on to anything, our responsibility as, as parents and as individuals is to at least, and as a starting point, help our family's faith to stick because God has a purpose for your family. To speak into the people outside of your family who are in culture, who are willing to cling to anything. But one of the things that we're supposed to do is to show them that a relationship with Jesus Christ is different than every other false world religion, which is exactly what they are. False. Now this text, um, before we jump into it, I'll give you just, uh, in case you missed last week, a little bit of the background. Um, the book of Joshua, incredible book of the Bible. He is actually the, uh, the person who followed Moses. You probably heard that name. If you're a church person or not a church person, you probably heard of Moses. Um, and Joshua followed Moses. And Joshua kind of was just kind of, ushered into leadership. So the, the nation of Israel and, and Joshua was just kind of said, hey, be strong and courageous. You're going to lead these people into the promised land, this, this promised land that had been promised for, for years and years and years. And now this is, he's living in the fulfillment of those promises. And Joshua was in charge. They fought the battles. The battle of Jericho, they won. God has done incredible things. And now it's getting a little bit later in his life and the people's hearts are starting to drift away from God's design and God's purpose. So he sends them one last challenge. And this is part of it. 
verse 14, says, Now fear the Lord. We talked about that last week. I didn't get very far. I talked about fear of the Lord, broke that up into four different parts, trust, authority, love, and worship. He says, now, now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped before, beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve. The gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But he says something, a declaration that each one of us need to have to have or that we need to have as family units. And what Joshua says, but as for me in my house or my household, we will serve the Lord. He says, make no mistake. You choose what you want to do. You You choose what gods you want to serve. But he says, as for me and my house and the family that that I'm leading, we're going to serve the one true Trinitarian Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God. And we will not settle for anything less. Going to be four things we're going to see this morning. Actually, just kidding. There's three main ones. But last week was give them a healthy dose of fear. First one we're going to see from verse 14. Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Serve Him with all faithfulness. Kind of point, takeaway, application this morning. First one is this. Develop your serve. Develop your serve. Develop your serve. I was going to come up with like a creative tennis story, but I don't have one, so I'm not going to. Develop your serve. In times like this, uh, I just want to bring something to your attention. Um, in verse 14, it, ser- it says, serve him with all faithfulness. With that, the words all faithfulness, it's kind of like a washover in the New International Version, which is what I, I read from and teach from. But there's a better translation uh, in the ESV, the English Standard Version. It breaks it down instead of saying all faithfulness, which is kind of vague. It says, in sincerity and in faithfulness. So it actually takes the Hebrew words, instead of putting them together, it kind of deconstructs them, if you will, and kind of lets them stand on their own. And this is what that means. In sincerity, just so we have some kind of meat behind it, that's a Hebrew word that means tamim, which means another rendering of it is sincerity or unblemished. Sincerity or unblemished. With sincerity or unblemished. Without sin, without hindering God's activity. Then the second word is emeth, Hebrew word as well, and it, it can be translated to faithfulness, firmness, or truth. So it says faithfulness. It's not incorrect the way the NIV does it, but I believe the ESV kind of draws that out a little bit better and really it allows us to, to really see that there's some meat behind this point. So developing our serve with all faithfulness. That means without sinning. With firmness, with conviction, with truth. With faithfulness. That's exactly what the watching world needs. 
They don't need Christians lobbing moral hand grenades across the aisle saying, you've done this wrong, you've done this wrong, you've done this wrong. What the watching world needs is Christians to humble themselves before Almighty God and say, how can I serve you to Jesus instead of judging you to Jesus? It doesn't mean there's an absence of truth. With all faithfulness, sincerity, unblemished, that means without sinning. That means if if somebody calls himself a follower of Jesus, the standard that they are to be called to is different than the world. Make no mistake. But if somebody's a follower of Christian, they are accountable to other Christians. They may not be favorable for you to hear right now. But you're accountable to other Christians. If you're not a Christian, you're off the hook. You can kind of pick and choose. But if you're a follower of Jesus or you identify yourself with Jesus, you would say, I am a born-again Christian. This is right in your wheelhouse. This is your responsibility. That we should, we should serve one another without sinning and also without letting other Christians sin with firmness and being unblemished with all faithfulness. Changes things. I ran into a quote from Matthew Henry. If you are a studier of the Bible and you go online and you study the Bible and you, like there's different websites to do it, this is uh, Matthew Henry's commentary is one that's free online. So you may have even seen this. But the quote says this, Those that are bound for heaven must be willing to swim against the stream and must not do as the most do, but as the best do. I love that. Swimming against the stream of our culture and say, you know what? I'm not just going to fall away. I'm not going to be like everybody else. And that's exactly what Joshua says. I'm not going to be like everybody else. I, and me and my, my household, my family, we are going to serve the Lord. He is Almighty God. He is sovereign. He is Lord of my life. And we're going to surrender our lives to Him. And we're going to faithfully obey Him as much as we can. And we are not going to sin. We're going to try and live a life that's, that's we're faithful to God and unblemished before God based in the truth of God. We, we live in, in a day where Christians are confused with grace and truth. And we think, well, we live, in, in, you know, we live by grace, not by faith. So that means we give everybody grace and nobody's accountable to sin. That is so wrong. That's not what Jesus said and that's not what Jesus did. Every time Jesus walked up to somebody, he spoke to their, their, for one, whatever their earthly need was, and then he went to the spiritual need. And if they were sinning, Jesus spoke about that. He shared the truth about it, but then also he gave the grace element behind it and said, hey, you're a sinner, but I know the way that you can be saved. The worst thing that we can do as Christians is to just ignore other people's lives. And if people call themselves to be Christians, to just ignore them and allow them to go about their life and say, ah, I shouldn't speak into their life, I shouldn't speak into their life. What if I offend them? If you are a follower of Jesus, you have a responsibility to serve those around you, and you cannot do it silently. You can't. You can't. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could say this about our own selves, but then our, our, also our family from Matthew 18, or excuse me, from Psalm 1844. As soon as they hear me, they obey me. 
How incredible would your testimony be to the rest of your family, even your extended family, who are not Christians? Maybe they're far away from God. Maybe they've actually looked at your life and see, wow, your life is no different than mine. Why would I want Jesus? But what would your life be like if you flipped... If you flipped a coin on that and you said, you know what? As soon as the Lord speaks, I would obey. Your life would be different, would it not? That's kind of idealistic. I understand how difficult that is. But wouldn't that be incredible? In obedience, the idea of obeying. Uh, obeying triggers redemption. It's the reason why obeying is so important. Romans 1.5 says this. Romans 1.5. Through him... And for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes through faith. Let's break this down just a little bit. It says, through him, that's Jesus, and for his name's sake. That means the name of Jesus. For his sake, on his behalf, not our behalf. We don't live on our behalf. If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't live to yourself. You live for him. He lives through you. When he speaks, you obey. Because He has a plan for you and a purpose for you. And it's not that we can just go live our our merry lives and do whatever it is that we want to do. He wants to trigger redemption in the broken world that we live in. So through Him and for His name's sake, for the name of Jesus, we received, Christians have received grace and also this idea of apostleship, of being sent out into the world. That's, That's what He's doing, is sending us out. Do you think it's a surprise that Jesus would see broken culture after broken culture after broken culture? He sees and knows all. Which is why he's left us here. And look what it says as this verse continues. To call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes through faith. See, this is a, a really profound thing too. The Gentiles, they were the people who originally, with the, with the Jewish thought in the Old Testament, they were the ones, it was prophesied that they would know God, but they were the people who, who were, not in, they were not given the ability to be able to come to God as readily as the Jewish people. But when the New Testament comes around, all the rules are rewritten. Now, everybody can go to Jesus. Everybody. But it says we go to Jesus and we call people from among the Gentiles. That means the people who are far from God. But we call them to what? The obedience that comes through faith. Because that's the way their lives can be redeemed. That's the way their marriages can be redeemed. That's, when they, that's how they can go into their workplace and understand that they're not just there to earn a paycheck, that God has put them on, uh, on a mission that impacts eternity because God has put an eternity on the human heart, is what it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11. Make no mistake, you're here for a purpose. He has a plan. And it rests in your obedience. So obedience triggers redemption. Also, there's a obedience in private from uh, the Old Testament uh, book of Ezra, which is an amazing book in and of itself. I wish we could really get into this more, but Ezra was a spiritual leader at the same time as Nehemiah. He was kind of like the the political, governmental leader. But Ezra was the spiritual leader at that time. And look what it says about Ezra in his private life. He says, Ezra had determined to obey the law of the Lord. That was the Bible as he knew it at the time. That he, he, in and of himself, he says, I personally, I privately, I'm going to obey the Lord. This is what I'm going to do. 
But then as an outflowing of that, and I love this, it's in the same verse, and now you see, now it's not just a private change, it's also a public change. So he would do that within his own life, that he would like surround the Word of God around his life to be the, the leading guide for his life by the power of God. But also, he says, and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. So he had a responsibility, not just of private obedience, but of public obedience. And so do you. So do you. We have a responsibility to, to look at another brother or sister in Christ to say, Hey, how are you living? How are you obeying? But you notice how, how Ezra 7.10 says that at first it happened in his personal life, and then that gave him an opportunity to speak into somebody else's. If you're not doing it in your own life, please don't try and do that into mine. Please. I'm not saying perfectly, but increasingly we should be doing these things, seeking to obey God for who He is, developing our serve. Our service is bent on our obedience. Pressing on, we're going to see the second takeaway this morning, the third one from this passage. It says, throw away the gods your forefathers worship beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. One thing maybe you don't understand is the Amorite people, they actually lived in the same land that now Joshua brought um, God's chosen at the time, that God brought God's chosen into this promised land, and these Amorites lived there. They pretty much controlled the land. They controlled the big cities. They, they controlled all the influence. There were five Amorite kings and five main influencing cities in that region. They controlled everything. And when God's people went in there, God challenged them. He says, you cannot serve the idols. They worshipped literally stone or wooden carved idols. They worshipped the moon. They worshipped the sun. They worshipped the God of fertility. They worshipped a bunch of crazy things. It seems crazy to us. But yet, we have to do the same thing. We have to reject all rivals in our lives. For us, you may not have a little statue that you go worship and that you bow down to every day, but I guarantee you that you have some idols. And they are rivals. They rival what God wants to do in your life. They do. 1 Peter 3, speaking of that, we're going to use this text. If you could hold your place in Joshua 24, but then go to 1 Peter 3. Here's a little cheat for that if, uh, well, A, you can go to the table of contents. That'd be the ultimate cheat. Or you can go to the end of your Bible and flip back to the left just a little bit, um, and you'll see um, First and Second Peter just um, beyond the book of Revelation, which is kind of a big book. First Peter 3, verse 15. It says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. He says, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Reject all rivals for your heart. Reject all rivals. He says, set apart Christ as Lord. Have you done that? 
Is Jesus the Lord of your life or is he just is he just an appendage to your week? Is he the Lord of your life or do you just accept him as savior as some some form of easy believism but like, well I have Jesus and all the benefits of heaven and I get Jesus and Jesus is my he's my bro now and I do all this because there's a a very clear contrasting difference between having Jesus Christ solely as your salvation, but then having Jesus Christ as your Lord, because if He is the Lord of your life, then you've trusted Him. He has authority over your life. You love Him, and that you worship Him. Not just on a, at a convenient time on Sunday morning, but every single day, every single moment. How you love your, your wife, and how you, you care for your kids, and how you go to your work, and the kind of friend that you are. The people that you allow to speak into your life or not speak into your life. He says, set apart Christ as Lord. But then look what also he says. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Followers of Jesus. This is you. Because God has put eternity in the human heart, this desire and longing for eternity. And we have to have not the the perfect words to say of sharing Christ with someone else, but you, you have to tell them of the hope that you profess. What difference has Jesus made in your life? And he, he uses that pesky little word that invades every part of us. He says, always be prepared. Not just on Sunday morning. Always be prepared. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But look what he says after this. But do this with gentleness and respect. So when Christians, they go out and they lob moral hand grenades against somebody who they don't like and they've, choose, they've, rather they've chosen not to like, is, is that going in, in alignment with God's Word, with, with gentleness and respect? No, the base of that is pride. I've got it right, you've got it wrong, come to my side and then you'll be right too. And you'll be a good legalist like I am. That's the heart behind it. That's the heart behind it. Sometimes our morality becomes an idol that we worship. We're like, no, we're good people. We're of the moral majority. I don't even know what that means anymore. Maybe it meant something in the 70s. We're part of the moral majority. This is who we are. Really? Oftentimes, our morality of saying, well, I'm better than you because I do this, this, and this. So you have a salvation built on your good works. And those good works are hidden behind your own morality. And now you've used that as an idol. You worship the idol of morality instead of, instead of saying, by the grace of God, I am who I am and I do what I do. So it's been on your good works and your, your idol of morality And you spend your whole life comparing yourself to everybody else. Maybe the idol of convenience. The idol of convenience. You're like, you know what? I'll follow Jesus if it's easy. I'll follow Jesus and I'll give him the best hour of the week. From Sunday from 11 
to 12. Now, I'm not going to do 12, 15. The preacher goes along. I'm not going to 12, 15, but I'll give him to 12. Then what you've done is you've had this, this basis, and now you have a, a, just this idol formed of convenience. Be like, I will do what God wants to do on my terms. The idol of convenience that's worshipped at the altar of sloth and laziness. And yet, things in our culture are kind of pushing us this way. Because now, uh, moms and dads don't play ball catch with their kids when they want to go out and learn how to throw a ball or, or even baseball or softball. Or they want to learn how to shoot a jump shot. No, no, what they do is they sign them up for rec department and they never teach their kids how to do it, but they take them to a coach who's quote-unquote the professional to do it. All the while, the parents sit on the, ins- or on the inside the, of the house thinking they're doing what they're supposed to do, but there's no interaction with their kids. They're not having fun with their kids. They're not doing anything with their kids. They're allowing the idol of convenience to drive their activities. And in the back of their mind, they're thinking, oh, I'm doing such a good job because I have my child done this and this and this and this and this. And unfortunately, the only reason I even bring all that up is because that's trickled its way into the church. Because even well-meaning parents bring their kids to church and they try and put a feather in their cap and say, you know what, we're doing the right thing. We're in church. And yet, they're not sharing the truth of God's Word outside of this building. You cannot grow, Christian, that way. You have to take in spiritual food, and so do those that are in your family. The idol of convenience worshipped at the altar of laziness. Then there's the idol of comparison. Comparison. Like, I'm doing pretty good compared to them. Or, man, you know what, I've got a, I want a new car because my neighbor got a new car, and if I don't get a new car, then I'm going to look like less of a person than them. And all of that is centered on envy and greed. And we fool ourselves into thinking that we're doing something right by giving those in our family more and more and more. We have the idol of instant gratification. If I can get it right now, I'll do it. Lord, if you give it to me right now, I'll do it. But all the while in the New Testament, over and over, a theme that's talked about is patience and perseverance and patience and perseverance. Maybe the very thing that you're praying for is not supposed to come through until you incline your heart to be closer to God's heart so then in two years when He gives you what you're praying for, you'll actually respect it and utilize it well. Idol of instant gratification. And then some of us, we even idolize our family. Kevin DeYoung, on a blog called The Gospel Coalition, which is a very good blog, very challenging blog, I would recommend that to you. He said, here are some, here are some warning signs that maybe your family has become an idol. You have little or no time for others. Just little or no time for others. Like, it's all about my family, and I'm running here, and I'm running there, and I do this, and I do that. I don't really know anybody at church. I'm not really walking alongside anybody else, any, any other Christian. You have little or no time for others because everything revolves around your family and their activities. Maybe you have little or no time to serve at church and and you defend your position by saying, oh, my family's just so busy. Little or no reaching out to others. 
little or no flexibility. Like there's no buffer in your, in your timetable for the week. It's just all about what you want to do and all about what your family wants to do. And it's all clouded with this idea of, oh, I'm just doing such a good job because I'm running like crazy going from here to there to here to there. And yet all that it's doing is just eliminating all the time that you would have to put yourself in community with other people. Little or no hospitality. My kids are just messy. I just don't know. I just can't have people come over. My kids are just so messy. My house is just so messy, and I've just got all this, and I just can't do that. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I want us to be so close as a church that you'd be able to come over to my house when my house is the filthiest, and I wouldn't feel bad about it because it's just we're so close that I know you wouldn't judge me. I want the same for you. And all of this ultimately leads to just little or no concern for others. Just little or no concern for others because once you push everybody else away and you don't make any time for anybody else and you don't serve anybody else and you don't serve Jesus, you don't share Jesus in your home, what that does is just pushes you farther and farther and farther and farther and farther and farther away to where you have little concern for other people. Now you're only surrounded by your desires and you defend it by, well, I just have to be with my family. God never gave you your family at the expense of sharing the gospel. Did you get that? He didn't give you your family as, as an excuse so you would not be able to share the gospel. Ever. Your family is supposed to be a portrayal of the gospel for the watching world to see. Read your Bible. Look in 1 Peter 3. Look in Ephesians 5. It's right there. It's not hidden. You don't have to have a theology degree. Last thing I'll tell you from all of this and, and I, is the idea of missional living. Missional living. As Joshua says, you know what? We're living on mission for Jesus, but as for me and my house, from verse 15, he says, we will serve the Lord. That's what we're going to do. No matter what you do, that's what we're going to do. Part of missional or living missionally, I, I want to just give you a couple of little things that you can uh, use. I'll go through them quickly for the sake of time. For the first one is this, model grace. Love is the goal. Love is the goal. Love is the goal. Now, at the point of loving, it doesn't mean that there's an absence of truth. Make no mistake. Model grace to the watching world around us. You want your, your family's faith to stick? Model grace in your home. Model grace to other Christians. Model grace to other Christians in other churches. That way, your family understands they're not the enemy. That we fight an enemy. First Peter tells us, in, in chapter 5, verse 7, who the enemy is. His name is Satan. He comes to seek, kill, and destroy, and to divide us. Second thing is this. Don't tolerate sinful behavior. Ephesians 4.15 says this, that we just need to speak, instead speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. That means we shouldn't tolerate sinful behavior in our home. We shouldn't tolerate sinful behavior even from those inside of that, that call themselves followers of Jesus. We shouldn't just tolerate it and just say, well, that's just who they are. Third kind of takeaway from living missionally is this. We should expect spiritual growth also taken from Ephesians 4.15. It says, 
you speak the truth in love, and that we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Jesus. It's a metaphor used in the New Testament talking about the church, all Christians, all Christians, not just our church, but all Christians, of being the body of Jesus to the world. He says, so that we will grow. You should encourage spiritual growth. You should, in, you should seek to, to grow spiritually yourself and then also to bring about that growth in your family. And last one is very straightforward. Maybe for you, you just need to create a family mission statement in which that, this would be a great one. Right from Joshua 24, 15. And that's, in essence, that's what he's saying. Maybe just create a family mission statement, uh, something that you can base your decisions off of and, and the things that you do and the words that you say and the activities you get involved in. You say, you know what, first I'm going I'm to sift this through our family mission statement, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then you would ask yourself, am I serving the Lord by doing this? Am I serving the Lord by saying this? Am I serving the Lord by not being involved in this? And we should talk about the gospel John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. The words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. But as I wrap this up, I want to... I'm just going to put some questions out there. We talked about Ecclesiastes 3.11, how God has put eternity in the human heart. Everybody has a longing for eternity. Okay, we got that. You've heard it. I don't know if it's concrete yet. Maybe I need to dump a little water. I don't know. But God has done that. We've talked about the rejecting all rivals. But let me, let me just put it to you this way. If you live for your kids, if you were to live for your kids, what happens when your kids move out? Okay, just think logically, not even spiritually. Think about this. If you live for your kids, this activity and this activity and this activity, and I've got to do this and I've got to do that, and they want to do this, so I have to do this. You have, in essence, made yourself the puppet on the string of activities. Right? What happens if you live for your kids? And what happens when, when the last one moves out? Okay, for one, you're going to celebrate, right? You're going to celebrate. You're going to make some plans. But then shortly after, you realize, wow, my idol just went to college. What am I going to worship now? What am I going to do now? Maybe you don't have kids. Maybe you're, maybe the rival for your heart is your career. And you've, you've, you've worked this professional portfolio and you've, you've worked hard and you've done everything you can do and you know what, you're safe and you've got a 401k and you've got a pension plan and you've got a backup plan to the backup plan to the backup plan. I mean, you have so much money that you have a life insurance plan, you have a supplemental life insurance plan, you have a, a, death, you know, a death insurance plan, like you're all covered, everything's great and you have all of this, this stored up and you've put all of your emphasis into building your career. Logically speaking, what happens when you retire? Uh, I, I, I didn't think about that. What happens then? You retire. You're not, you're not working overtime anymore. You're not craving middle management anymore. What do you do then? That's your idol. What are you going to worship then? You know, Marla and I have been married 
for 20 years, almost 21. And there's going to be a day, by the grace of God, at the end of our earthly life, that one of us is going to breathe our last. And then following that, somebody's going to stand either in a place like this, if they choose to, we choose to, say some nice words over, over the other one, And one of us is going to be sitting in a coffin. One of us. And more than likely, the other person is going to look upon the other. But if we have idolized our marriage and our idol dies, how do you have salvation from your sins? Where does that come from? When your idol dies, where does that come from? When we idolize even the, the marriage and the sanctity and all the stuff, good stuff, okay, we, 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 if we idolize that, we idolize our, our, our partner. In the, in the covenantal bond of, of marriage, and we worship them. And if we do that, where is the salvation from, from our sins going to happen when we look in the other one? After they breathe their last, where's it going to come from? As the band comes up, I, I want to—I just want to ask you this question: Where have you put your hope? Where have you put your hope? Have you put all your hope in your 401k? Because you can't take it with you. You can spend it before you go, but you can't take it with you. Have you put all your hope in 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 your business and I'm doing this and I've got plans and I've I got a college degree and and I've got all this stuff. Have you put all of your hope in those things? Because it is a bottomless pit. Acts 4:12 says that salvation comes by no other name outside of Jesus. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. If you have put your hope in something else, it is a lesser thing and it is an idol and it will not bring satisfaction for your sins. It cannot. It will not. God does not. He, he is not a God of universal love and you can get to, get to heaven and you can have satisfaction for your sins any way that you want. He has made the way possible. And it's by doing what the verse says on the screen that Jesus laid down His life for you. He has done the work of the cross. His body ravaged on the cross, spit upon before He went on the cross. The, the crown of thorns driven into His head, blood dripping from His body, left there to die, mocked, ridiculed in front of everyone. That's what He's done for you. And in response to what He has done for you, He sends an invitation. Accept me as Lord and Savior and you will have satisfaction for your sins. But if you accept a, an idol, you will spend eternity away from me.